0: LifeVest is a proud sponsor of CardioNerds. New data from 96,000 real-world patients show advanced arrhythmia discrimination technology was associated with a significant reduction in false alarms. See how these results may improve your patient's experience at LifeVestTechnology.com. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated CardioNerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, CardioNerds. We are here for another exciting case report episode. And today, we are in the Finger Lakes in Pennsylvania with cardiology fellows from Guthrie Robert Packer Hospital, Dr. Priyanka Ghosh, and Dr. Ahmad Lone. Priyanka, Ahmad, will you introduce yourselves?
1: Hello, and thank you for having us. We're so excited to be here. My name is Priyanka Ghosh. I'm a second year general cardiology fellow. I will be heading back to my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania once I'm done here to pursue my career as an interventional fellow there. I'm so excited and really just thankful for this opportunity.
2: Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for having me here. I am Ahmad Lone. I am currently also a second year general cardiology fellow at the 3 Packard. After fellowship, I plan to do an additional
0: training in cardiac electrophysiology. Fantastic to have you here and so excited to see how your careers continue to unfold. So we're in Sayre, Pennsylvania. What is your favorite chill spot so we could talk about cardiology? Set the scene.
1: So we'll take a quick 30 minute drive or so up to Watkins Glen, which many people might know for the Formula One racing area, but it's a beautiful area right on the lake. Let's imagine ourselves we set out a picnic blanket some nice fruit and maybe some wine. And we're just enjoying the view talking
0: about this awesome case. That sounds terrific. All right. So why don't you start us off? Tell us about your patient.
1: Sure thing. So our patient's this 35-year-old male. He initially went to his primary care office complaining of four days of a headache. Normally, this guy doesn't get headaches. Also says he has some fatigue, fevers, chills. His wife, who accompanied him at the visit, also says that she's noted some confusion in him. He denies symptoms like visual or auditory changes. No pre syncable or episodes and no other neurological symptoms that he can think of. He says he took some Tylenol for these symptoms and maybe noticed some mild improvement. So he sees his primary care doctor. His primary care doctor says, well, let's see what happens. But over the next few days, his symptoms worsen. And so he goes to the emergency department. And at this point, now he has new symptoms of chest wall pain and soreness. I just want to back up and say he has no past medical history, never had a surgery in the past. He's on no medications, just that as-needed Tylenol. His only allergy is to penicillins, and that's what he was told as as a kid. As far as his family history, he has no family history of heart disease, no sudden cardiac death. His mom and dad have hypertension, and that's really basically it. As far as his social history, he does have a 10-pack-year smoking history and some social alcohol use, but no illicit drugs. So Ahmad, I'll throw it to you. This patient comes to see you, and what do you think?
2: Thank you, Priyanka. Well, the patient comes in with really very nonspecific complaints. As of right now, I could say this patient's differential could include everything and anything. His main things are that he's been having fever now with headaches, which makes me think that is there something sinister like some kind of CNS infection, meningitis, maybe even encephalitis going on. Though again, since this is a CardioNerds episode, I imagine we should think of something along the lines of the heart as well. You mentioned that he's having chest pain. So you would think as to the differentials of the chest pain itself with the fever, is it a process in the lungs? Is it a process in the heart? Is he having pneumonia? Is he having pleuritis? Is he possibly having pericarditis as the cause of his chest pain? Um, you know, is it just subcostal chondritis? Again, even though he's only 35, acute coronary syndrome, even though it would be pretty low in the differential, he certainly cannot rule it out without doing additional workup. And of course, a patient with non specific symptoms, fever and chest pain, and in the absence of initial workout, we would definitely have to keep myocarditis in the back of our mind as well. So Priyanka,
1: how did he look? Yeah, great job. I agree. The differential so broad. So in terms of how he looks, a couple things to keep an eye out for. So on presentation, his temperature is 101.9 degrees Fahrenheit. His heart rate's 93. He has a blood pressure of 136 over 82. He's breathing about 18 times a minute, and his oxygen saturation on room air is 97%. In general, looking at him, though, he doesn't look so well. You could tell something's off. But he's not in any acute distress, but something doesn't seem right. In terms of his cardiac exam, he has a normal rate and rhythm. I don't really appreciate a rub. He doesn't have any murmurs. And when you palpate his chest because he's had been having this chest wall soreness, not reproducible, says his symptoms are different than that. His lung exam is benign. It's cleared auscultation. It doesn't have any wheezing, no rails, no crackles. And his inspiratory effort and expiratory effort is fine. His abdominal exam's essentially unremarkable. As far as his extremities, I don't appreciate any peripheral edema. He's well perfused, normal capillary refill. And as far as his neural exam, because he presented with this headache, he doesn't have any focal neural deficits. He's alert and oriented. He's able to tell you his story and his medical history. And in terms of his dermatological exam, no sort of rashes, anything like that. So what do you want to know next, Ahmad?
2: Thank you very much, Priyanka. That was a very comprehensive exam. So the exam by itself was able to rule out a fair number of differentials. Neurologically, he is intact. He's completely awake. Encephalitis a bit less likely. You didn't find any stiffness making again encephalitis a bit less likely. You didn't find any chest wall tenderness making costochondritis less likely. So it does rule out some differentials and narrow it down. to so the differential is still very broad. So I would like to do some basic labs on him. CBC, CMP says he's having chest pain, definitely a troponin, NTP and P. Get some inflammatory markers and blood cultures. Of course, given that we're just coming out of the COVID pandemic, I would definitely like to get a COVID test on him as well as a respiratory panel to begin with. And then go ahead with some imaging, EKGs, and then see what we find. So when we did his labs, we found that his chemistries are relatively unremarkable. His electrolytes are normal. Renal function is normal uh, in terms of his liver function. You know, his AST is 75, but the rest of his labs are normal. His CBC though, there's something to be said. His hemoglobin is normal, but his white count is 55,000. And he's mildly thrombocytopenic, as well, count of 102,000. And when we do a differential on his labs, we find that he has 30% eosinophils in his blood. And remember, the normal percentage of eosinophils in blood is between 0 and 7%. Uh, amongst the other labs, we find that his troponin is greater than 7,000 nanograms per liter. And it continues to have an uptrend, 8,700 and then 18,000. Then TBNP is also elevated at 3,400. Lactate is normal 1.2. His ESR is normal. Uh, in addition, he also has 9% atypical lymphocyte. Normally, they're supposed to be less than 2%. And of course, surprisingly, CRP is elevated at 19.6 mg per deciliter, normal less than 1. His respiratory pal, including COVID, is negative. Priyanka, some really interesting labs here. What are your thoughts on them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for reviewing that. So in a young kid like this who otherwise has no past medical history coming in with these Pretty nonspecific symptoms that have been going on relatively recently. What's concerning that his white count so high at 55, definitely narrows down your differential in terms of severe leukocytosis. That platelet count is a little worrisome. Why is a young person like this with a platelet count of 102? And then I'm glad that you went over the differential of his CBC. His eosinophil count is quite up there, 30%. But being cardiologist, we should really also pay attention to that elevated troponin level that's continuing to rise. And his nt BNP is also elevated at 3,400. So I think with all this put together, it definitely narrows down our differential and makes us worried for some more things. And I think with acute coronary syndrome, like you had mentioned earlier, of course, he's young, but something to leave on the differential. You know, maybe a little lower on my differential with some of these lab values. So he came into the emergency department with all these complaints more in his chest. He did get a CT chest done. And so essentially what that showed was no pulmonary infiltrates. He didn't have any mediastinal hyalur lymphadenopathy, but the spleen that they were partially able to image on his CT chest did seem enlarged. And of course, he's coming into the emergency department complaining of chest pain. So they did order a 12-lead EKG. His EKG showed normal sinus rhythm. But interestingly enough, he did have some ST depression inferiorly, as well as in leads V3 to V6. So what are your thoughts now that we have all these diagnostics so far in the emergency department? What do you think? So a
2: lot of interesting findings. His troponin is high. He's having chest pain. And the fact that he has ST depression throughout his anterolateral as well as inferior leads suggests that there's an element of myocardial ischemia with infarction going on as well, even though he's only 25. But then there's more to the story. His white color is so high. He has so many eosinophils. It is, again, while we're first thinking that this We obviously, we're thinking that first thing first, we have to rule out, we have to think that this is an acute coronary syndrome, and you have to think that is there acute plaque rupture as the archaeology of his troponin leak. But with these hematologic abnormalities that he has, one would think that does he have some bone marrow infiltrative process going on, which is then also affecting his heart as well. Remember, you mentioned that he had headache. I almost wondered, is this some kind of leukemia that he's having? His eosinophils are very high. Is there some kind of inflammatory process driven by eosinophils in the heart, meaning myocarditis? We're thinking eosinophil myocarditis now. Is that going on in the background? A few things, interesting things that are going on, uh, but definitely we would have to, you know, rule out ischemia first. So, Priyanka, why don't you tell us what his cardiac workup showed?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I want to just take a second to appreciate your broad differential. First, as cardiologists, we're all internists, right? And then we're cardiologists. So it's so important, like you did, to take a step back and really put this patient in a bigger picture and not just focus on obviously what the most important organ is, the heart, but really to think about what else could be going on systemically that we're seeing some cardiac manifestation of a systemic disease. So with all this going on, the emergency department is concerned about his elevated troponin and the EKG changes. So they contact the cardiology service and this patient gets admitted to the cardiology service. So his first diagnostic test that he has is a strain thoracic echocardiogram. So I'll share the results with you, Ahmad. His left ventricular ejection fraction looks to be decreased. I would say it looks about 40-45%. But his right heart size and function looks fine. And he doesn't have any sort of significant valvular disease. All right. So Ahmad, you mentioned doing an ischemic workup earlier. And I completely agree. There's multiple options of doing an ischemic workup. Especially for this young patient, something to consider would be a coronary CT. You know, his heart rate was in the 90s, so probably not ideal for a coronary CT. We decided to take him down to the cath lab, aka the table of truth, and perform a coronary angiogram. And his vessels looked fine. His right coronary didn't have any significant stenosis and actually showed normal coronaries. Same thing with his left system, normal coronaries, no coronary disease to be seen. So at this point, this patient's had a normal cardiac catheterization, and he's clinically stable, but still, something quite doesn't look right with him. So we proceed actually with a repeat echocardiogram, which now shows this layered echo density at the apex of the LV. So then we proceed with a cardiac MRI. His MRI shows normal left ventricular chamber size and normal contraction. His ejection fraction is calculated to be 58%. His right ventricular size and function are normal. With tissue characterization, there's a large area of sub and mid-myocardial delayed enhancement, most prominent at the left ventricular apex. There's a laminated LV apical thrombus, which I think we were able to appreciate on the repeat echocardiogram, and there's a trivial circumferential pericardial effusion with evidence of diffuse pericardial inflammation. The MRI findings are most concerning for myocarditis. So Ahmad, with all this, what are your thoughts with these change in the echo findings? And what do you think we should do next?
2: Some very interesting findings. And my initial suspicion for myocarditis just grows stronger now. In fact, I may even be convinced that there's some kind of myocarditis that's going on with him. The question is, what is the underlying etiology of that myocarditis? Now, is it some kind of infectious process? Is this some kind of non-specific inflammatory process? Is this a rheumatologic process or is this we saw his hematologic abnormalities? So is there a primary bone marrow process that's going on and that's just secondarily affecting the heart as well? One of the things that I would definitely have thought of is what, what is the possible role for an end myocardial biopsy? And one of the things that would lead me towards not jumping to that immediately is that the patient is hemodynamically stable. It doesn't sound like fulminant myocarditis. I am pretty concerned about his white cell count. I would rather get the hematologist's input now.
1: So, we did start up with an infectious workup and we tested for multiple antibodies. And what we found was positive IgG antibodies for Epstein Barr virus, negative IgM antibodies for EBV, positive IgG antibodies for cytomegalovirus, but negative IgM antibodies for CMV. His mononucleus screening test was negative and he had negative Coxsackie antibodies. So, we turned to our hematology and oncology colleagues and Based on their recommendations and this patient's neutrophilia, eosinophilia, moderate lymphocytosis, and thrombocytopenia, their recommendations were to proceed with a bone marrow biopsy. So, this patient undergoes a bone marrow biopsy, which shows 46% blast and immunophenotypic findings that are suspicious for acute leukemia with eosinophilia. So, ultimately, with these bone marrow biopsy results and the recommendations from our hematology and oncology colleagues, we started the patient on IV methylprednisolone, 125 milligrams daily. Because of his LV thrombus, he was started on IV heparin with a warfarin bridge. And even just within a day, his symptoms started to improve with the steroids. Additionally, for his reduced ejection fraction, we started him on Ramapro and Metoprolol. And ultimately, this patient was transferred to a quaternary healthcare facility for further management as of acute leukemia. He underwent chemotherapy therapy and ultimately underwent a bone marrow transplant. So After he undergoes a successful bone marrow transplant, he unfortunately goes on to develop a couple complications. Although he's stable from a cardiac standpoint, unfortunately, suffered from graft-versus-host disease and other complications of his acute leukemia. So despite him having some of these hiccups along his course, the last we've heard of him, he's pulling through. He's regularly following with cardiology and doing well from that standpoint and also following along with closely with his hematology oncology team. So Ahmad, from this case, this young patient who presented with these nonspecific symptoms, ultimately diagnosed with eosinophilic myocarditis secondary to acute leukemia with eosinophilia. What are some of the takeaways that you got from this case?
2: Thank you, Priyagra, for that excellent review. Again, I'm glad to hear that the patient's doing well from a cardiac standpoint. Again, unfortunate that he's still struggling from complications of his acute myeloid and subsequent bone marrow and stem cell transplant and the immunosuppression. Again, it goes to show You can take care of the heart. However, the body as a whole is still important as well. It's clearly he's still suffering from that. So I hope he does well from that standpoint. And I'm glad to hear that he's actually doing from a heart standpoint. In fact, I know he recently had a repeat cardiac MRI, which shows normal RV and LV ejection fraction and actually does not show any evidence of delayed gadolinium enhancement. So clearly all the treatment that he has gotten have helped his heart a fair bit. The rest of his body again, I'm not so sure of. I was going through this nice review published in Jack by Brambardi and colleagues from 2017, Yosyncelith myocarditis, and I came to find out that really there are absolutely no registries, no clinical trials, not even any case series on this. They're only just uh, this is just okay. a, a systematic review of all the cases that have actually been published regarding of myocarditis. There are only like two fifty of these. And again, with a very heterogeneous clinical presentation, a lot of them having dyspnea. And one thing I realized was a lot of them, I would say almost 80% of them have some degrees of ST abnormalities. Around 35% of them actually had ST elevations, and around 40% of them had ST depression or other ST abnormalities like our patient had. So our patient clearly affects the profile from that sense. And the vast majority of cases, eosinophilic myocarditis is actually more a part of other diseases. It, again, they're idiopathic in the vast majority, but then high st- hypersensitivity, eosinophilic myocarditis with eosinophilic with granulomatosis, polyangiitis are some of the common clinical entities with which it presents as well. And if we talk about treatment, the treatment really focuses on what the primary disease is. Again, since this is an inflammatory disease, immunosuppression is the mainstay of treatment. So like our patient got steroids, but there's really no clear evidence to guide us as to how long they need to be on the steroids, what kind of immunosuppression they need to be. The review article mentioned that literally a lot of immunosuppressors, like methotrexacyclophosphamide as a in some cases the immunoglobulins, they can be used as well. What was really unique about our patient was that I didn't find any cases of acute myeloid leukemia actually having eosinophilic myocarditis as a complication. So it's interesting to note that literally a lot of systemic diseases can actually cause eosinophilic proliferation within the myocardium itself.
1: Ama, that was great. And thank you for bringing up that review article. I think myocarditis in general, and especially eosinophil myocarditis, just requires a high clinical suspicion from the team. And I think one thing to reiterate again is... Although we are cardiologists, we definitely need to think like an internist first and make sure that we're not missing cardiac manifestations of systemic diseases. And I think that this case highlights that very well. Again, I'm glad that our patient is ultimately doing pretty well. We hope that he continues to improve and that we can all learn from his case and keep that on the back of our mind for the next young patient that we see with some non-specific symptoms that may be presenting with some elevated troponin or some cardiac abnormality.
0: Thank you, Aman and Priyanka, for discussing this extremely interesting and important case and really approaching it from the broad internist first and digging down, solving the puzzle and finally getting a diagnosis for the patient and then getting him to the place where he could get the care for the underlying cause and etiology of his eosinophilic myocarditis and also appreciating that the road for his recovery is rockier, but glad to hear that he's doing well from a cardiac standpoint. This has been an amazing talk and I have learned so much. So thank you, thank you, thank you for doing this with us.
1: And now for the eCPR segment, we have our faculty expert, Dr. Saurabh Sharma. Dr. Sharma is one of our faculty attending cardiologists who also specializes in lipid disorders and has recently become the program director of our internal medicine residency program at Guthrie Robert Packer Hospital. Dr. Sharma is an excellent teacher both in the inpatient setting and the outpatient setting. And whenever you talk to Dr. Sharma, he always has some sort of clinical pearls to teach you. So here you go, Dr. Sharma.
3: Oh, thank you, Priyanka, for that kind introduction. Thank you, both of you. Thank you, Ahmed, for an excellent presentation and overview of this case. This really was a very interesting case for me, and uh, I will be very happy to speak a few words about a few interesting and teaching points that I would like the audience to take home. I was involved in treating this patient during my inpatient week and I must say it was a great learning experience for me. I was very intrigued with this patient's presentation. The patient's presentation was a puzzle, but a puzzle that we diligently solved together. So here are a couple of general take-home points for our listeners first. My first general point that I would like all our listeners to take home is the eyes see only what the mind knows. You know, treating this patient was filled with challenges and breakthroughs, as you heard from Priyanka's and Amit's presentation. The whole experience gave us profound insight, not only into the diagnosis of eosinophilic myocarditis, but also how a disease process unfolds itself and gives us windows of opportunities to get diagnosed. Had we not repeated another echocardiogram after we found eosinophilia and LV systolic dysfunction in the first one, I don't think we would have been able to make the diagnosis of eosinophilic myocarditis that confidently. Our mind knew that there is an association between eosinophilia and LV systolic dysfunction and hence we ordered another echocardiogram. My next general point for all our listeners is rifle approach versus shotgun approach in the diagnosis. Now as physicians, sometimes we do a shotgun approach in in making a diagnosis in this case also initially we cast a wide net with a shotgun approach while forming the differential diagnosis however as the pieces fell into place our strategy shifted to a focused rifle approach you know elevated troponins elevated nt pro bnp crp NLV systolic dysfunction and eosinophilia guided us towards precision. Even though the first echocardiogram did not show a layered thrombus, our vigilant minds prompted us to repeat the procedure, keeping the possibility in mind. And that decisions, my friends, led us straight to the definitive diagnosis through an MRI. And hence, I would like to emphasize the importance of forming a wide range of differential diagnosis first, as it is a fundamental and systematic process that helps us narrow down the possible causes of patient symptoms and signs, and also allows us to judiciously utilize our healthcare resources. Now, having said that, let me give our audiences a few points to remember about eosinophilic myocarditis. Now, as we all know, it is a rare form of myocardial disease characterized by inflammation and eosinophilic infiltration of the myocardium. Most commonly, it has been reported in association with other diseases like hypersensitivity reactions, like drug-induced hypersensitivity syndromes, including antibiotics like minocycline, tetracyclines, beta lactam antibiotics, etc. Some CNS agents like clonazepam, carbamazepine, phenytoin, tricyclic antidepressants, even some vaccines are associated with this, Anti-tubercular agents are associated, and even diuretics there are some immune-mediated disorders such as eosinophilic granulomatosis or Churg-Strauss syndrome, Lofler syndrome, or even parasitic infections are associated with eosinophilic myocarditis. One interesting thing about this is that one research study showed that eosinophilia is only present in 75% of the cases, which means that in 25% of the cases, you may not find eosinophilia and that could help you in the diagnosis. So, merely the absence of eosinophilia does not necessarily rule out the diagnosis of eosinophilic myocarditis. That makes things complicated, is not it? Now, eosinophil-mediated heart damage evolves through three stages. Now, once you remember that these three stages may be overlapping and not clearly sequential, the first stage is an acute necrotic stage. Now, in this stage, we observe endocardial damage, infiltration of the myocardium with eosinophils and lymphocytes. There is eosinophil degranulation, myocardial necrosis, and the formation of these sterile microapses. Quite a complex process, wouldn't you agree? This can certainly be seen only after a myocardial biopsy. So, one has to have a very strong index of suspicion for this particular disease process. Now, interestingly, during this phase, the disease tends to remain clinically silent, making it a bit challenging to detect. Typically, the physical examination appears normal. However, there may be some instances where we notice conjunctival or subingual splinter hemorrhages, just like in patients with infective endocarditis. Now, these could potentially be small emboli originating from the endocardial surface which might offer some valuable insights. Echocardiography can be normal during the acute necrotic stage. However, in our patient, we were able to identify LV systolic dysfunction, which gave us a little bit of a clue for the disease and intrigued us to keep looking for more. The second stage is an intermediate phase, which is characterized by thrombus formation along with the damaged myocardium. The thrombus is formed by the actions of eosinophil peroxidase in forming a compound called hypothiocinous acid which diffuses into the endothelial cells and induce tissue factor expression which is believed to play a crucial role in thrombus formation. Once the thrombus is formed, patient may develop embolic complications. The third stage is a fibrotic stage characterized by a altered cardiac function or causing heart failure due to either restrictive cardiomyopathy or due to some fibroinflammatory remodeling of the valvular structures leading to valvular regurgitations. The diagnostic workup of eosinophilic myocarditis involves several key tests. The EKG may reveal T-wave inversions. Our patient had some ST depressions, however, an echocardiogram, as uh, you know, is crucial, showing uh, LV systolic dysfunction and the presence of an LV apical laminar thrombus. During the acute phase, troponin elevation might be a clue, along with elevated antipropion P and other inflammatory markers. Our patient did not have elevation in ESR, but he did have elevation in CRP levels. Additionally, eosinophilia will be evident on CBC again, emphasizing the fact that eosinophilia will only be present in 75% of the cases and 25% of the cases will not have eosinophilia. So, merely an absence of eosinophilia does not necessarily rule out the diagnosis of eosinophilic myocarditis. Now, for a definitive diagnosis, an endomyocardial biopsy is recommended. However, it's essential to acknowledge that the test's yield is not always 100%. In certain cases of hypersensitivity eosinophilic myocarditis, the infiltrates may have focal lesions that could be missed by the biopsy. Furthermore, the occurrence of cardiac arrests in hypersensitivity eosinophilic myocarditis does not necessarily correlate with the degree of myocardial infiltration or necrosis. So one has to be very careful in choosing the endomyocardial biopsy for selected patients only especially those patients who are in acute fulminant heart failure. Now, moving on to the treatment, managing arrhythmias or, you know, the heart failure based on convention guidelines is usually crucial in these acute myocarditis cases. And the cause-targeted therapy is usually employed. In other words, if you know the underlying and associated disease condition, treating that disease condition is the key. Corticosteroids are often utilized particularly in systemic conditions like eosinophilic granulomatosis and polyangitis and hyper eosinophilic syndrome, where they have a primary indication. However, it's essential to note that clinical trials specifically testing the efficacy of steroids in eosinophilic myocarditis patients are lacking, even though they are often used due to the associated conditions. So it's a rare disease and it's a complicated one and really one has to have a very high index of suspicion. So in conclusion, I would like to say that eosinophilic myocarditis is a very rare and frequently underdiagnosed disease. Therefore, it's crucial for healthcare professionals to maintain a high index of suspicion for this disease in patients with clinical presentations resembling our case. Early recognition and appropriate management can make a significant difference in patient outcomes. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for tuning in to another Cardio Nerds
2: episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Pacey Wettstein. I am an intern in the Cardio Nerds Academy, House Jones, and an MS1 at Lecom Seedon Hill. I invite you to check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode informative, please consider subscribing to CardioNerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming
0: episodes. And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split.